the Physician's Road. Create your life in medicine, on your own terms. Today, we are on the path of relationships. Today, on the Physician's Road, we're talking to Dr. Michael F. Myers, a preeminent researcher and clinician on physician marriages and relationships. In this two-part interview, we'll discuss how to strengthen our marriages and relationships, what warning signs to watch out for, and when to seek professional help. In part two, we'll discuss physician suicide, behavioral problems in our children, and the unthinkable tragedy that is the loss of a child and how to cope with the emotional devastation. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free your today. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Eric Tate, internist and founder of The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Today, we're on the path of relationships, and I'm so happy to have uh, probably the world's expert in physician relationships, uh, Dr. Michael Myers. Um, Dr. Myers comes from us from uh, Brooklyn. He's at SUNY Downstate. He is professor of clinical psychiatry at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York and the immediate past vice chair of education and director of training in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's the author or co-author of eight books and over 150 articles, book chapters, letters, book reviews, and eight videotapes covering a range of topics in psychiatry. His two most recent books are Why Physicians Die by Suicide, Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Cared, and The Physician is Patient a clinical handbook for mental health professionals, co-authored with Dr. Glenn Gabbard. Dr. Myers is a specialist in physician health and has served on physician health committees for both the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association. He was in halftime practice for 35 years until 2008. For the past 20 years, his practice was limited to the treatment of medical students and physicians and their families. He is a recent past president of the New York City chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and an emeritus board member. Currently, he is on the board to the Committee for Physician Health of the Medical Society, State of New York. He writes a monthly column on physician health and illness for Psych Congress Network and for Psychology Today. Dr. Myers, welcome to the Physicians Road podcast. Uh, We're happy to have you. So please kind of give us a little bit of your background and how you came to be in this field of study. Okay, Eric. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk. Um, I'll just give a brief synopsis. I, uh, my, uh, I, my first exposure to problems having to do with physician health was when I was a first-year medical student. And one of my um, three roommates, there were four of us who were medical students all living together, killed himself over the Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, that, was, that was awful. Um, this is back in 1962. Um, if we think that there's stigma associated with problems in doctors today, it was 10 times as bad back then. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. Losing, losing Bill was such a shock for all of us in our class. And, you know, for the three of us as you know, losing a roommate, um, we heard nothing from the Dean's office. Nobody spoke to us. 
we didn't go to the funeral. We didn't send flowers. I look back on this and think if Bill had been killed in a car accident, of course we would have all been there. But that just was uh, the times of how things were silenced. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea that I might even go into psychiatry at the, back in those days, but it was through my residency. I started out in internal medicine and then switched into psychiatry. And, and during my residency, I got to treat um, two or three physicians um, or their family members. And then I did child psychiatry and I looked after kids of doctors. And that sort of gave me a little bit of confidence and a bit of a leg up in having a, a physician as, as a patient or a member of their family. So that when I opened up that halftime private practice that you mentioned in the bio, um, I started to see, uh, you know, quite a few physicians. And that's why I decided to restrict my practice, you know, after, you know, a certain number of years. And so that kind of brings us up to, you know, how I sort of became who I am today. Gotcha. And so that's a, that's a, I mean, from per- personal tragedy, um, many of us have, have experiences that formed us into coming and becoming physicians. Um, yes. And so it, it's, it's interesting that it's a multi-generational um, in terms of how we often come to medicine. And so I just want to show the podcast listeners want to understand, but the, from the video standpoint, that I came to you because of this book here, Doctors' Marriages. I was doing research, just looking to see kind of who was out there who was going to be able to treat physicians who historically had done it. And your book is it's like a textbook. I mean, your annotations, the research that you've done, the research that you've pulled from um, is, is phenomenal. And so it's a shame because it's very hard. Your book is hard to find. Don't know if you have any plans of re-releasing it uh, and updating it. But the reason why I wanted to have you on was really to kind of go through it um, and let people understand if they can't get their hands on it, kind of that they're not alone out there and that the particular situations that we will go through, depending Mm -hmm. on where they are in their life and in their um, kind of, coupling, as we would like to say, that there, that physicians are not alone um, and that there are some very specific issues that we deal with as physicians in um, either marriages or um, exclusive relationships. Mm-hmm. And so I guess we should probably just dive right into it because I know that we're, we're short on time in terms of your schedule. And I, again, we appreciate you taking the time. So let's just kind of go through why physician marriages may be different. Are they different? Kind of, kind of give an overview of, of kind of that the coupling process for physicians. I'm happy to, Eric, and thank and thanks for that intro to that. Um, you've got the second edition there, and that was published, I think, in 1994, about six years after the first edition in 1988. I wrote the book because I was seeing so many problems of doctors in my practice. And you're right, I didn't have a template. I didn't have a guide either. I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants. But I thought I learned a lot. And it's interesting that you say that your your audience will realize they're not alone because that was one of the most important pieces of feedback uh, which i found very gratifying uh, when i'd run into doctors they say you know your book really gave me the spark to go see someone with my wife or with my husband because i don't know i just thought we were the only ones and i realized you know this isn't uncommon so i'm very happy about that so what i wanted to say about that largely in a sense you know our marriages really are that you know, that different than, say, other marriages that are kind of similar to that. And the two most similar ones would be those situations in which the marriage is more traditional. In other words, where the physician um, 
And so, so, you know, right now I'm kind of talking about a situation where it's usually a male physician, but sometimes the reverse, a female physician is the, is the primary breadwinner, the wage earner, and the other spouse is the full-time homemaker, mother, or Mr. Mom, or something is basically doing all of the unpaid labor of running the place. And you still see some marriages like that. The vast majority now, though, are sort of dual career. And even if both parties aren't working full-time, especially when the kids are young, um, the other partner, though, is maybe working part-time and itching up, inching up to, you know, sort of more full-time as the kids grow up. Except those couples that they're, they, they have dual career, dual doctor marriages friends right from the get-go, and they have extended family living with them, or they have a nanny or au pair, somebody living in, or a very good daycare system or something like that. So you could compare our marriages to those other groups of people, you know, where they're, where they're busy. But where the difference is, I think, is where at least one of the partners is a physician. And what that has something to do with, and I like to call it this, there's, I used the word stigma earlier. There's still, there's still kind of stigma in the house of medicine that, that you shouldn't have any problems or whatever, or you just have to deal with them yourself um, or not complain or something like that. And, you know, so many couples I would see, one of them was sort of saying, look, we don't need to, you know, we'll fix this ourselves until the other spouse realized that, you know, we ain't fixing this. In <laughs> fact, it seems to be getting worse. And I always felt if I could get both people in there for that first visit and make it pleasant for them and and safe, then I usually didn't have any trouble getting them to come back because they realized, look, here's a guy who's just trying to help both of us. He's not taking sides. He understands this stuff. He's going to figure out what's wrong. He's going to make some suggestions and hopefully give us some hope. Yeah. And if that translates into the children or something like that. So in that, in that way, I think probably we're just a little bit different you know, and maybe maybe the hours, especially in those branches of medicine that really, really demand, you know, at least 50 to 60 hours per week. And that's just, that's the regular week. That's outside of times of the year when the person's on call more often or something like that. So that, 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 that's hard work. That's a lot of hours. And that's hard for the other spouse and sometimes for the kids too. Okay, per that's perfect. That 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 I think will set the perfect framework for us to understand that we we aren't different, but that um, in society we're often seen as the most competent. We're the ones who people look to in society for help, and mm -hmm. so I think there is still that stigma that that does permeate and in terms of our people looking to us thinking that we have all the answers all the time mm -hmm. um, and then projecting that forward into weakness and the things that you talked about, which we will actually get into a little bit. So, okay. so let's just go through it. Let's go to chapter one. So medical students, residents, fellows, kind of what are the big stressors, strains, issues that, that they need to be mindful of either going in or while they're in practice, whether it's themselves or their spouse looking from the outside. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Because they're in training, they're also a little bit younger, of course, as well. Uh, and this may be the first time around for them as well, their first like serious relationship or intimate relationship or something like that. Um, a lot of the contemporary couples, too, um, in medical school or residents are what we call adult children of divorce. So they kind of know what it's like to have a breakup in the family while they were growing up or perhaps, you know, when they went off to college. Those young people, they, they're more, they have more of a tendency to go for help early. 
because okay. they they just state it right out there. They'll say, Doctor, I used to get calls like this, Dr. Ferris. You know, I hope we're not bothering you. I know how busy you are. Um, our problems, I don't think, are maybe as serious as some of the ones you see. But, you know, we'd like to nip them in the bud. And we'd like to lay down some good skills early. Uh, would you see us? I said, absolutely. You know, so I'd see, you know, a couple like that. So what they're dealing with is, you know, the, the again, a lot of work, a lot of study, maybe anxiety about exams. Um, Education debts, as you know, I think uh, I may be a little dated on this, but I think the the sort of ballpark figure of a graduating student today of debt load is roughly a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, I that's think it's somewhere in that in you know yeah. plus or minus you know standard that's deviations. Right. That's a lot of money, and having that hang over your head, even if you haven't started a family and don't have children you're both going to be leading pretty busy lives, especially if you're both like dual career people. So it's finding the time to have together that is really the key. And I used to spend a lot of time just kind of looking at their schedules with them, trying to figure out if they were both doing on call, for instance, mm -hmm. if they could kind of coordinate their schedules at all so that they're both on call at the same time. If not, they've got to be really organized uh, in order to kind of, you know, protect time for their time together and and by the way i think that's a key a key word protect time or two words protect time because as you know medicine is so demanding and so are a lot of other fields as well so i'd say to couples look at you need to find at least if you can one evening a week when you can have it just for yourself where there's no interruptions preferably outside the home if you can maybe out to a restaurant out for a walk something like that if not Try to do it within the home. And I'm talking about put your pager aside, turn your cell phone off, turn off the TV so that there's no distractions, and just kind of review where you're at, how the week has been, how the day has been, or bring up those things that are a little bit hard, hard to bring up. And so I'm kind of getting into general communication skills, but they, you know, they they're really important, really, I think. In 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 an intimate relationship, a committed relationship at any any life stage. So that's just kind of a a little bit of it there. Okay, perfect. And I mean, I I, th I think what you just said is going to be um, a continued theme as we move through uh, in terms of communication. So what I'm hearing you say is to be present, to make protected time, kind of the uh, the the ubiquitous kind of date night where it's just you, the other person, even in, in training, that carving out those habits early on in the relationship and in the marriage will say, set great groundwork for later on as you progress through fellowship training, potentially, and then out into the uh, working world. Yes. Yeah. Erica, if I could just add one thing. Yes. Uh, it's a little bit harder to do when you're in training. And what that is, is to try not to be totally used up when you walk in the door at the end of the day. You know, that, that, that's hard during training and especially certain residencies that demand so much. You know, you come home and all you want to do is just flop into bed mm -hmm. or put up your feet and watch something silly on TV or something like that. But when and if you're not totally used up is good because you really do need to, again, protect some time and energy for that person who you haven't seen for 12 hours or maybe even longer. Mm -hmm. um, and I could say that to both partners as well, because, you know, when we're, when we've got that time and energy and rest, we're, we're just nicer people. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing right now in medicine is just a kind of, kind of schedules and those kinds of things. Yes. So would you say that if partners going in understand that there may be some decompression time needed when someone first comes home, 
But then yes. after that, you kind of are, will then come together. And, and of course, every, every couple is going to have their rhythm, uh, yes. figure out what that rhythm uh, looks like. But they, would you say that just having that understanding um, would be helpful on the, at the outset so someone doesn't feel neglected? Yes. In fact, I like your term decompression time. And that will vary a little bit from you know person A to person B. But what I always told people, though, I said, except though, Yes, you, you, you're well, you, you know, you, you, you have a right to a little decompression time, but you have to say hello first. And you have to, and even better, how, how, how about a little hug? And how about a little kiss? Even if you're not feeling that sort of good with each other these days or whatever, just try it. It's a, at least a way of saying, and then if you really got it in, you say, I'm so happy to be home. I kind of miss, I missed you today or something like that. Those are terms of endearment. Those are sweet words that, let's face it, we all like to hear. So Absolutely. And my, my suspicion is that you're directing this to the males in the population who are maybe, <laughs> that's my suspicion. Well, so, <laughs> okay. So let's move to kind of chapter two. You kind of go into kind of male physician marriages. And during that time, medicine was, was very much... Well, not well, moving from being so male dominated, kind of in a transition, but much more male dominated now. So for male, when the male is a physician kind of in the marriage, kind of what, 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 what issues need to be top of mind? I mean, I think yes. some of it, this last, what we were talking about, but let's go a little bit deeper. Yes. Yeah. In fact, yeah. Cause you're right. That's kind of a bit of a segue from what you said just in the, in the last few minutes, Erica. See, I mean, this, this is kind of stereotypic what I'm about to say, but there have been a lot of gender studies and the differences between how men and women communicate and some very fine researchers in that way as well. And there are exceptions and there's things in different cultures too that apply. At the end of the day though, there's still a little bit of difference of how we communicate quantitatively versus qualitatively, uh, whether we speak a little more freely about our feelings. That's a little bit harder in, in men, unless they've, they've just happened to be hardwired that way, or they've grown up in homes where they've seen their dad, for instance, speak openly about his feelings, that sort of thing. Whereas most of us haven't had that kind of experience. It just, it just feels a little bit, you know, a little bit foreign. But yet that doesn't mean that you can't learn that stuff or that you can't, you know, maybe you can also kind of communicate it non-verbally at times where your spouse or partner, wife will get, will get the impression that, that that's his way of, of showing his love for me or something like that. So when, when, so I used to help them quite a lot sort of in my office, like with role playing, especially having to do around communication issues and things like that. It could work the other way too, where sometimes I would have to, I would have to explain to the woman, look at, I'm going to, I, you know, I just, I just need to stop you for a minute because I've noticed as you're talking, your husband has kind of, it looks to me, well, then I'll say, were you kind of tuned out a little bit? To which then he says, well, yes, because she goes on and on and on. And then she says in her own defense and understandably, well, if you would say something, I can't even tell whether you're hearing me, but you're not nodding your head. You're not even looking at me. I can't even tell if you're listening. So a lot of this is what we would call communication hygiene you know, that okay. they just need some sort of help with those kinds of signals. That helps so much. And as I say, and sometimes people communicate better when they're in motion, believe it or not, when they're out for a walk, 
when they're riding their bikes together. But I always told them, look, if you're riding your bikes together, remember that you're not, you know, one of you isn't out there training for a triathlon and the other one's, you know, a mile behind you. That's not, that's not the kind of, that's not the kind of situation I'm talking about. Sometimes people say, you know, we talk better when we're in the car on a motor trip or something like that. Okay. So it's to kind of get that going. That will just help so much. And just to kind of finish this one off, just really what's important is that when and if you're not doing that, this translates into problems in the bedroom. I used to see so many couples, Eric, who they say, well, look, we're in pretty good shape, but our problem is really a sexual one. And so they would describe what that might be. And it would be the usual things, you know, yes. you're not making love as frequently, or one of them is no longer having orgasms or somebody, the man is having trouble with erections or things like that. But at the end of the day, though, it was the same thing. I said, look, I'm just going to put that aside for a while. I said, I'm trained in sex therapy, but that's not what you two need right now. I'm going to help you more with your communication. 99% of the time, once that got back on track and there was a sort of a rediscovering of trust mm -hmm. and affection, non-sexual affection and companionship, mm -hmm. things took care of themselves in the bedroom without me having to do anything at all in that okay. department. So, so how do you teach male physicians this process or what's the, pro and even if you're not doing it anymore, where can male physicians go to learn how to improve their communication skills? Oh, yeah. Okay. First of all, there's, I used to tell people, because some people would say, you know, we live in a kind of an isolated area. So I would say, well, first of all, what you could do is that you could, and back in the old days, so you can go to your local library and get out all kinds of books on communication. But nowadays, of course, it's the internet. Mm -hmm. There is so much stuff on the internet. So for those people who actually kind of like to read, you know, there's a lot of different books, often written by psychologists and other therapists, how to communicate more effectively, et cetera, et cetera. There are many of those out there. I never, I never ever really suggested particular authors or titles because I felt there's so many different strokes for different folks. Some of them, by the way, are faith-based as well for those couples who actually find that they, they, their religion is important to them. They may have been actually to religious retreats on, on marriage and he found those very helpful. But then after that, though, there's a lot of videos now that are available on TV that illustrates too some basic communication examples where they, sh you know, they show couples with a therapist. So those kinds of things can help as well. Then those other physicians, I say, look at, go see somebody, somebody who's at arm's length um, that maybe you, where you feel that you're getting, you know, sort of complete confidentiality. Nobody's taking sides. And it may be somebody who is a psychologist, clinical social worker, a member of the clergy, something like that. And that can really, really help because they're with somebody who's trained and somebody who's objective, you know, who is, is not a family member or a friend, so they're not taking sides, who can really kind of see the big picture. It, it, it really instills just sort of um, like peace and, and, and trust and hope. Okay. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that, that, you know, all kinds of what we call couples therapy or marital therapy can, can really benefit people. I also tell that to people, too, who are really in trouble. I said, look, at, at least do that just to see whether or not your marriage might actually be saved. If not, that person will help you separate. Okay. And he'll help you, he or she will help you separate with, with dignity. 
Okay. I have that down to kind of talking yeah. about separation in the treatment when we move to treatment. So, so let's talk chapter three. So female physicians, um, when you wrote it, there weren't as many female physicians in medical school. Now I think the number is 50% of, I guess, incoming classes are right. women. And so yeah. that will trickle through the, the, the profession over time. And so what, what, it, what do you see when the woman is either also a physician? Because I think reading your book, you said that, that many women physicians or, a, percent, or a, a large percentage of them tend to marry other physicians. Yes, um, yes. Or if they're the only physician in the, in the marriage, what does that look like? It's true. Yeah, most, of, most, of, most women physician marriages are at least dual career couples or, or if, if, if they're not dual doctor or something like that. Once again, occasionally though, a physician will will have much more education than her husband. Um, she'll uh, <clears throat> you know she'll make more money than he does. But they have a complete role reversal that works for them, uh, and they commu- they can communicate beautifully together. Sometimes people have trouble understanding that, but they really do. Um, so, but if we just confine it more to sort of women physicians in general, I always tell them I think what's more most important is is you have a right to yourself, to your feelings, and to your voice in this relationship. Because historically, too many women have put their own needs last. Mm-hmm. Okay? So they will say that, look, at I put my patients first. I put my kids first. I put my husband first. Or then, my, then, I, then I've got my mother on my back. I've got her and, or my aging parents. And, you know, that sandwich generation and things like that. I said, look, you have a right to things too. You have a right to some time off either to get to the gym or just to read a book or something like that, where you don't have those worries, those kind of things. Then when it comes to your relationship, then you also have a right to, you know, a certain modicum of time, you know, with your, with your husband. And so when and if she, she already had that sort of in place, then she may be the one placing the phone call that, look, at, I told my husband, you know, we're both surgeons, for instance. I told him, look, at, unless something changes, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that's scary. And then so he, he may come reluctantly to that first visit. But once again, though, if the first visit goes well, he'll keep coming and there's a lot that, that can be done. So that would probably be my, my major sort of message there is to protect time for yourself because okay. you, you deserve it. You have, a, you have a right to that. Okay. You, you talk about the, the worry work of a marriage. Uh, oh, women tend to yes. to feel. Can you can you expound yeah. on that? Yeah. yeah, Eric, thank you for thank you for that. One of the things that I noticed, even in the most egalitarian of couples, okay, where she's married to the most cool, kind of you know, uh, cool, uh, well balanced contemporary man who 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 cooks. He does laundry. He 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 shares the childcare. He pays bills. I mean, this this guy is, you know, really something. And she knows it. And so that's good. So they, they really are sharing a lot. <laughs> then she'd say, but, but why am I still tired? And I'd say, you know what? I th- and I'd say this to her husband as well. I think it's because you're, you have an unpaid job that we haven't really talked about. And that is the executive function. or the, You're the CEO of the home. You're the one who masterminds this whole scenario. 
you're the one who thinks that, you know, I think we need to get a different nanny, who thinks that we need to start saving for a particular vacation or something like that. Or you're the one who thinks that even though my husband does the food shopping, he likes to have a list. He doesn't think in the middle. Yeah, he's not thinking in the middle of delivering a baby that, oh my gosh, I need to pick up toilet paper on the way home from work. Those kinds of things where she's got her finger on the pulse, that take that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy, and it's unpaid, of course, and and that has to be respected. So I think when the woman feels that you know her hardworking husband in the house, like she is, um, really respects her and loves her for that, that helps a lot. So are you saying appreciation goes a long way in some of these uh, relationships? I bet it does. Yeah, my, my, my wife. My wife is also an internist, and she talks uh-huh. about she's reached her decision-making limit for the day. Um, and she has to make too many decisions. And yes. so, yeah, I, 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 I like do it. this because I live this stuff. Right. So it's, it, we're all trying to work through these things together. So selfishly, yes. I, I, I hope by doing these, this podcast, these interviews that I come up, become a better person myself. Uh, and before we move from female physicians, let's talk about pregnancy complications and feelings around this. Um, I know an- anecdotally, um, in my residency program, we had a lot of um, female residents who miscarried, who had complications, who ended up on bed rest. Um, and again, it's just anecdotally. Someone like yourself who sees a much wider range, how common is that? Well, it's not uncommon. Let's put it that way. And you know what? I have felt for a long time that our system needs to be able to accept that not everyone can get pregnant the day they want to get pregnant, can time that pregnancy so that it's either just before their residency or just before their fellowship or something. It's not always that easy or that you can have a a complication of pregnancy uh, and that means bed rest. Or you could have a postpartum complication. Of course, the biggest one in my area is postpartum depression or psychosis or something like that, that we see in psychiatry. But it always troubled me when the system, though, doesn't really allow for that. that It's because a a woman shouldn't have to sort of lie on a job application that she's pregnant, or that she shouldn't have to lie that she would maybe like one or two kids over the next three or four years and say, oh, no, no, we're going to put off having family, blah, 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 when she should be allowed to be authentic. So there has to be this recognition and also then if a woman does become ill or something during her residency, that somehow the work can still get done, that the remaining residents don't have to do double time because not only does the person who has to take time away feel guilty, well, then the other ones get resentful. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think that we should ever have to put ourselves in situations like this that we feel like bitter toward a colleague who we normally like and respect mm-hmm. just because they had to take some time out or they got ill or they've had, you know trouble with one of their kids or something so that's why you know things that can really you know where there's um you know like an escape valve or something like that are really really so very important and that she has a right to that kind of care too absolutely the other thing that we yeah. should I was just going to ask one quick mention. One thing is mm-hmm. called reproductive, and it's it's in the field of reproductive medicine too. Mm-hmm. That those individuals who are struggling with pregnancy and that that can be very very stressful, and that's not uncommon in especially in women physicians who have, in a sense, delayed childbearing for a while because they've had this huge 
uh, period of training that has taken the past two decades of their life mm -hmm. or something, or it hasn't worked out the men that they've been dating or that they're with or, you know, things like that. Um, but every, I think we need to realize, you know, that th there's, there's strain there too, especially if you develop a complication with this, this, you know, highly prized, you know, time in your life. And so what would you say to, um, female physicians, uh, who've had, who, who will either go through pregnancy complications or have had them in terms of what emotions do, have you seen them go through and how can you reassure them that they're not alone. What is it that, okay, yes. what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, I can say a few things about this and I would, I would make an appeal to any women physicians who are watching this because they may already be doing this because they're the experts. They've been through it themselves. When they reach out to their junior colleagues or to the medical students or to the residents that they're training in these sort of like, you know, all women rap groups or things like that, where, you know, an older woman, you know, who's been there has a mentor, that is so helpful because they realize this could happen. I'm not alone. This woman did it. She survived it. She felt this, that sort of stuff. Because see, you can get all kinds of emotions. And sometimes it's hard to sort out how much actually might even be the treatment. Is it is it hormonal or something that I'm partly having some of these symptoms? Mm -hmm. Or is it is it a lot of anxiety I've got around fears, pregnancy loss, for instance, which can set off a whole cascade of emotions, or just just, just the fear of this is maybe going to be complicated or we don't know until we get, you know, genetic testing or whatever, whether the mm -hmm. baby's going to be all right. And those are, those are just very normal and just very common. Just, you know, and also, as you probably know, sometimes when we have some information in medicine, that can be our undoing because yeah. it's scary. And that's why we, as doctor patients, we need to always consult somebody who is an expert in that area because they can be so reassuring. Okay. Just they look at, I think your anxiety is running away from you a little bit. I've been looking after women with this condition for the last 15 years or whatever. I think A, B, and C. That can be so soothing to, to any physician, you know, who's you know, who's, who's anxious about something. Absolutely. So say, so what I'm hearing you say is that in some ways um, we need to take the stigma in medicine uh, a, a, away from pregnancy complications, miscarriages, those kinds of the difficulty sometimes in getting pregnant and reaching out to, to colleagues who've gone through that uh, to not feel alone. And then, um, yeah, I guess that that that, yes. that would be your your yeah. view. Yeah, yeah, Eric, you're right, and that's also a more general message. But I think we have so much trouble just admitting sort of anything, you know. Like I remember, I had to comment on a a publication of trauma surgeons who were experiencing PTSD. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, when you look at the work that they're doing and stuff like that, I'm surprised more of them don't have PTSD. Yeah, things absolutely. like that, and they just have to be. You know, you were doing heroic work. This is yeah. valuable work. Take care of yourself so you can keep doing it. Because I think you do need to kind of, you know, pull back just a little bit. I think you're working too hard, et cetera, et cetera. Just, mm -hmm. it's like giving them permission. Absolutely. You know, you know for our humanness. Absolutely. That's, that's a big thing for me when, when yeah. talking with physicians is giving ourselves permission to feel the things that we feel and not feel guilty about it. Absolutely. And so let's move to chapter four. So gay and lesbian couples. Um, I guess when you wrote it, um, it was, people were, it was a different time in society. Uh, first edition, second edition to where we've come today. Um, it, we, it seems like we've come 
light years in many ways. And so what are you seeing? What have you seen um, in terms of any changes in the dynamic in gay and lesbian couples and their ability now to be able to marry? Um, are there very specific things to watch out for uh, in, in, that, in those couplings? Yeah. Okay, that's a big question. But I would, I would agree with you. We have come so far in the last couple of decades, even before legalized marriage, I mean, there was just sort of a sense of, you know, higher level of acceptance. Um, and so, and, and I don't think we should ever underestimate how freeing that is for individuals who have felt marked or who have felt in the shadows or who have felt, you know, wronged in some sort of way. So just to know, that they can actually formalize their love for each other, you know, because it used to be commitment ceremonies, now they're actual weddings. And, and when you have your, your families of origin and your friends there standing and supporting you um, in giving their blessing and things like that, that is tremendously affirming. Okay. And, you know, marriage is tough, you know, and for all kinds of people, a different state. So to just to kind of know that is really, you know, just very helpful. I'm fond of saying that, you know, at the end of the day, the difficulties that same-sex couples have really aren't that much different than than heterosexual couples. And of course, they are going to differ if it's, say, a lesbian couple, the way they might communicate, whereas uh, a gay male couple, the way they might communicate. But once again, though, it's, it's if, you know, when attention is paid, though, to the communication and to, you know, try to make sure that it gets back on track or that it gets better than it's ever been, that's the kind of thing that will help a lot as well. And of course, nowadays, too, with so many same-sex couples actually having children, that's really introduced a whole other level, too, of, of interest and responsibility and um, sort of a lot of, a lot, I know that a lot of gay male couples who have either adopted children or have had children through surrogacy, um, will also, some of them are quite happy actually to, to kind of temporarily have a little bit more of a traditional marriage where one of the men will actually stay home and be the dad for a few years. And, you know, I, I don't know what that will all mean, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the long run, mm -hmm. but but overall, I think that we're just seeing, you know, just um, just you know, basically some very you know similar things that you know that you could apply in a sense, you know, the sort of the same, you know, the you know the same attitude or the same kind of uh, support okay. uh, too. That gotcha. sort of thing. okay. Yeah. And are there any specifically because if we're talking about medical students or residents, people may be um, coming out during that time period. Um, are there anything in terms of what, what advice would you give at that point to, to someone who is, who is discovering their sexuality in yeah. their medical training? Yeah, actually that's, that's not, that's a good question probably for anybody irrespective of sexual orientation okay. that, that there is something to be said for maturity. Um, and cause we've known for, well, for a long time, that those marriages that are conceived qu at quite a young age, now this is in Western society, mm -hmm. that are conceived at quite a young age, and especially if they're complicated by a pregnancy, you know, that kind of in a sense drives the marriage, they have a much higher uh, rate of, 
of breakdown and divorce. And it's because they, they really just don't have the maturity, that sort of thing. So when people are a little bit older and, and actually have spent you know, quite a lot of time together, that really, that really helps a lot when they take that next step of actually making a commitment to each other. Now, having said that, I've, I've certainly looked after couples who didn't meet each other, say, whether they're gay or straight, they're, they meet each other in their late 30s. And they said, listen, we telescope this. You know, we met online. We were basically sort of engaged at three months and married in six. Uh-huh. But, but, they, but, but it's interesting. They approach the relationship with a maturity that they wouldn't have had if they were 20 or 25. Because they just say, look, we just cut through so much of the BS that we're kind of right there and we can, we can tell. And we've got to we just have a maturity about our love. It's, it's less selfish. Gotcha. And, you know, that sort of thing. And we know that from studies of love, actually, through the life, life cycle. But that's, a, that's probably another interview, Eric. Yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> the conundrum is this, right? Our, our fertility is highest when we're youngest, and then it yes. peters out. So it's kind of a, yes. a catch-22 in some ways. It is. All right. So let's, so let's move on to, the, to chapter five, the, 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 the divorce, uh, the, the, the big elephant in the room. And okay. from what I can see and from in reading your, your, your book is that physicians tend to divorce at a lower rate than, than the general population, but it still does happen. And yes. so let's kind of talk about divorce. Does it affect physicians differently? Is it, about, is it the same? Is it the same kind of superhero complex that we have that we need to be seen as perfect so we have an ego fall in a bigger way because we, we are now yeah. divorced? Kind of give a little background in terms of what you've seen. And okay. what you've seen. That's a huge question. Uh, to, and I'll tell you why is because it, you know, one sort of attitude to separation or divorce varies so much sort of with who they are as individuals and also their age and also their culture. Um, some people have a have an have a notion of of, of almost i don't know if, if you'd necessarily call it serial monogamy mm-hmm. but they sort of have a sense of look at we're we're living longer than we used to and the generation before kind of lived in quiet desperation for a long time and didn't even bother to divorce or the divorce was too expensive or something nowadays people have more options and will sort of live leave loveless marriages Mm-hmm. But that said, though, it's still it's still not uncommon to have feelings of failure. Yeah, you know that this just didn't work. So mm-hmm. that's why I would often urge people to at least go see someone if you haven't at least tried. Go see someone. It may be somebody, as I alluded to earlier, who actually helps you separate. But I looked after many demoralized couples who had viable relationships. They didn't need to separate. They didn't need to divorce. They were just weary and, um, and kind of worn out with each other. So they were able to kind of, kind of revitalize, um, revitalize their marriage. But that said, though, um, people do need time, though, with a separation. And I always used to urge people that if they're going to be dating again, to take their time and take time to have actually grieved that first marriage that you you know that divorce that sort of thing because that's very very important and um because that way that will stand you well you know in your next relationship and if you're doing any co-parenting that will also give your kids time to really have you to themselves because they may not have felt that they had that before when mom and dad were together and they don't want it complicated by a stepmother or stepfather like in the early stages 
They don't want that. They're, they're going through adjustment themselves. So that's where a lot of help is available to, for people. And I always urge people to take advantage of that, that it'll help you, it'll help you, it'll help you regain your self-esteem too, because there are clearly some marriages that are no longer working. There really is nothing left, and it really is good for everyone, including the children, that they live apart. Gotcha. There's still that loss, but there's no longer that horrible tension or that desperation or maybe the rage that was there where everybody's feeling a little bit beat up. Mm-hmm. So, And so you, you talk about in the chapter mourning, and you, you kind of alluded to it, but can you go in a little bit more depth about the, the, the process of mourning, the yes. end of, of this relationship yes. and kind of the healthy ways in which people can do that. Yes. Yes. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. It's, it's mourning what once was, okay? That it's not there anymore, but it's also mourning what was supposed to be, hmm. whether that meant we were supposed to have a family together or we were supposed to be together, I thought, until our kids graduated. Or we were supposed to be together and kind of grow old together. Uh So there's that kind of mourning too. And, oh, I I talked to former spouses of physicians who would tell me, and I'm also mourning my loss of the medical field. Because I met my husband, you know, when I was in grad school in chemistry, and he was in medicine. So I kind of went through that whole process with him, through mm-hmm. medical school, through residency, through those early career years. And our whole world was kind of medicine. And now that's all gone. Wow. Um, so I've kind of lost that, too. That sort of stuff. So there's, so, but when, again, when people can, can be aware of that, they can talk about that, they can get those feelings out. They can be understood and supported. All of that is what we call grief work. Yes. That's very helpful. They will feel better through that, that sort of thing, and not necessarily be negative about a possible second relationship down the road. Maybe maybe not, mm-hmm. because you do see more, more women than men. You, you may or may not know that. The remarriage rates for men are much higher than they are for women. Um, that probably says something about, that's probably more historical than anything that we're not very good at looking after ourselves or something. That's exactly <laughs> what that says. There's so many, <laughs> so many women who say, been there, done that. I'm not doing that again. Yep. And some of them will say things though, like, you know, I like to date. It's kind of nice to go out and have fun with someone. Some will also say, look at, I don't even mind a little bit of casual sex, but I don't, I don't want the commitment. I really just, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm independent. I'm happy. I've got wonderful friends and I like my life. Oh, absolutely. And so, and I think over time there will be less and less stigma around that as well. Yes. And so moving to chapter six, so older physicians. Um, and so that takes into account um, kind of retirement, loss of skills, things of that nature. Um, Can you just kind of give, actually, that's a broad topic. So let's talk about uh, physicians being, you talk about physicians being masters of denial. What do you mean by that? Okay. What I meant by that, I think, in that would be, the now. and see, we see less of that today. More and more physicians prepare themselves for retirement. Okay. And, and we don't, we won't be able to go into this today, but when you look at all the burnout stuff out there. Oh yeah, that, that's a whole different topic. <laughs> many, there, there are doctors who are taking early retirement and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And so, so many doctors retiring today 
they've they've already got a lot of stuff in place, and so that they're not going to be, you know, you know earlier we we're done about grieving. They're not going to be grieving medicine. But I've got so many colleagues who look back on medicine. They're retired, and they say, "I loved it. I loved what I did. It was a wonderful career." I'm glad as a physician, but <laughs> do I miss it? No, not at all. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying that. That sort of stuff. I gave it, you know, a 40-year run or something, that kind of thing. Others, though, that that don't have that, they really do have to fill in time in their lives, especially the men, because most of their wives don't want them sort of hanging around like lost little children because they're kind of busy with their lives. On the one hand, though, of course, they want more time with their husbands because now they can they can travel more together and not be dragged along to a medical conference or something where they only see him for one day or something, you know, and the rest of the time he's He's indoors at the convention center, yes, that kind yes. of thing. So, um, and the only and the other thing uh, that I think you see in older physicians, of course, as they come to terms with their increasing mortality, is mm-hmm. they, they, you know, they get they get sick, and so they're kind of giving up, you know, slowly the vitality, or they getting or they getting quite serious illnesses, or their colleagues are, and they begin mm-hmm. to lose you know, classmates from medical school. And that's where, you know, reunions that medical schools have that can be, they, they can get kind of sad, you know, as you get up to 50 years and, and beyond. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And, so so many. Do, and do you see physicians or have you historically seen physicians coming into um, professionals to talk about those kinds of things? Is it something that they are self-initiating? They're yeah, yes, spouses yeah. initiating or both, is this both. just something that's yeah. happening right now and it's yeah. an epidemic that we don't know about? No, because Eric, it wouldn't be uncommon for me sometimes for an older man, a retired physician, and his wife to come in together because they're kind of readjusting. They're having some communication difficulties around how they are going to spend their time together and apart and things like that. But it wouldn't be unusual then after, oh, I don't know, two or three visits that I have both of them together where he asks, and she's fine with it, if he could maybe see me a few times, just on his own. And I always love that. I thought, here's a guy who's never really done this before. You know, he's never really talked to a, a therapist, let alone a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, is that sometimes people develop late-life depressions. Okay. He may need specific treatment for that. That he's concluded, for instance, that he can't do A, B, and C, when actually what he hasn't realized is that he's got a low-grade clinical depression going on and could respond very nicely to both an antidepressant as well as some good supportive psychotherapy, then he feels great again. And he's ready to go into this whole, this whole other chapter of his life. Okay. Perfect. And that's actually perfect segue for chapter eight in terms of treatment. And so, um, so let's talk about kind of, you, you broke up in the chapter kind of what things can be done in, in a relationship in, well, I don't want to call it crisis, but in some despair, what can yeah. be done on their own without kind of professional help? And then mm-hmm. kind of when should someone seek professional help? Okay. Yeah. What I usually tell them then, if it feels like the things that you're doing both as individuals and as a couple, whether, you know, you're employing some of those other things I mentioned earlier, and things don't seem to be changing. So it is good to go see someone together. And, you know, when I was teaching this stuff at the, uh, the teaching hospital where I worked, I always trained my residents. I said, you know, you're going to see each of these people alone. 
because they also need a, a, a thorough assessment just to make sure you're not missing something that needs specific treatment. We already touched on depression a moment ago, but there are other things too that maybe have been undiagnosed, like, for instance, a substance use problem. Mm -hmm. And you probably know that as an internist is sometimes people's use of alcohol actually goes up yes. as they get older or things like that. And physicians can be in denial about that and they don't see it, that this is affecting their communication. It's affecting their sexuality, things like that, that may need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. um, and also, too, there were sometimes I'd see couples, the, the, one of the reasons why their communication wasn't working was because one of them actually had what we'd call like a major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, because he was depressed, it was hard for him to, like, he was talking even less, or he couldn't concentrate, or he was tired all the time or he had lost his libido. I mean, things like that, so that when you actually treat the depression, the individual gets feeling better again, then once again, the, the marital difficulties may take care of themselves. Okay. And, and that's why I always felt that here I was, a physician, trained psychiatrist, doing couples work, which was largely talk therapy, but I never regretted having all of my psychiatric training and my in my general medical training to pick up those things that maybe somebody else may not see okay. um, I, I can remember picking up like an early an early alzheimer's like an early dementia in somebody where the wife said you know he just you know he just he doesn't pay attention and he's 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 got an he's he's got a temper he, he, he forgets things i tell him and next thing you know i had him off to see a neurologist okay yeah and so that kind of, we probably won't have time to go into it, but that kind of goes into the different people that you can go through, go to yeah. in therapy um, yeah. and what that looks like. And so, um, so yeah. that, that, that's interesting. And so how would you direct someone to find a find professional help? Okay. What, what would that process look like for a physician at this point in time right. from, from right. your okay. understanding? Yeah, and there's there's no there's no formula because it's it's a little bit different for some people, and depending on who they are. And this gives me a chance to plug primary care physicians, <laughs> as you may or may not know, many physicians do not have a primary care physician. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but when they do, though, that's the person I think to start with because okay. you could go there, and if you've developed a trusting relationship with your doctor, where you, in a sense, are really allowed to be the patient and he or she's allowed to be the doctor, those are individuals with resources as well, so that they may agree, look at, you know, they'll say, look at, here's, here's a couple of people who I refer individuals to, the feedback I'm getting about them is wonderful, and they're very comfortable looking after other physicians. You know, that's music to our ears when we're doctors and we're, and we're about to become patients. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of a referral that you're getting from your own primary care physician. Now, other people you know, wouldn't do anything like that, but they'll go, some will go, again, I touched on this earlier, but religiously oriented people will go to their, to the person of faith. Now that okay. could be their pastor, their priest, their rabbi, their imam, that sort of stuff. And then sometimes those people provide some counseling. Others are actually trained in, may have an associate's degree in psychology or social work or something, but others will refer them but out there, there are a lot of people who are psychology. The, the vast majority of people who do couples work are PhD psychologists yeah. and clinical social workers. 
And many of them, I would say to them, look, look on their website and see if they belong to a national group like the American Association of Marital and Family Therapists. Okay. That's a huge group of thousands and thousands of therapists, that sort of thing. They could probably also find someone there. Could you re re repeat that group again, just so yeah. I can make yeah. sure I explain yeah. it? Sure. Yeah, it's AAMFT, the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. Perfect. Yeah, so they're, and they're you know, statewide and every, all that sort of thing. The other people, though, do go by word of mouth. And that, that's very helpful. If you've got family members or friends who went to see a particular therapist, they seem to be pleased with that person. That's often a very good, a very good referral. Okay. And I always tell people too, you'll be able to, if you can't tell in the first visit that this is somebody who you think you're going to be able to do work with, then maybe, maybe give them another visit or two. But definitely then you'd be able to tell, ooh, this person's good. She really gets us or he, he, you know, he's a guy, but he, he appreciates my wife's position. He appreciates my position, et cetera, et cetera. Cause sometimes people get concerned about that, about gender stuff that they're going to, some men say, well, I, I want to go to a woman because then, you know, she's going to side with my wife. Mm -hmm. Well, not a, not an experienced trained uh, woman professional is not going to do that. You know, okay. she, she, you know, so, so, you know, those kinds of things, but they don't necessarily know that. And they're afraid of being sort of ganged up on or something. Gotcha. And we could go into, cause I know you, you, you talked about kind of, what was it? Dual, dual physician alignment and all these kind of things, but yes. we don't, we don't yeah. have time, but, um, so <laughs> can you give someone who's not done any type of professional therapy an idea of what the process is? So okay. kind of give them kind of a, what that looks like. Yeah, the, the most common process is where you, you go to see the person together. Okay. When it doesn't work that way would be a situation, for instance, was maybe you've gone to see someone alone, but you've recognized you got some marital stuff going on, or the therapist does, and then they want to see you with your spouse. Now, if your spouse is okay with that and isn't worried that you're going to have some sort of alignment with that person and they're going to be chopped liver or something, well, mm -hmm. then, you know, you're going to be fine. Um, or the other way around, that kind of thing. But, but when you both go together, then this is a stranger to the two of you. And what you're going to expect is that that individual is going to want to know, first of all, what are the issues for you two? Okay. But is, is going to need to hear, though, from each of you because that therapist is going to be trying to sort out, hmm, she seems to be more worried about this one than he is, whereas the drinking, you know, she's more worried about that than he is or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that just there's just this sort of sense. And that, that's, that's about all you get done in the first visit is just sort of a lay of the land of what the issues are. Okay. Then the person will sum up a little bit at the end and just kind of explain a little bit what they think if they can, just even in a preliminary way, and then just give a little bit of a plan of maybe what the, you know, that he or she wants to see you again. In my case, I, the second and third visits that I did, and, the, and I've written about this, and this is the way I teach, was always an individual visit with each person alone. Okay. But that's not universal. There are many, there are many couples therapists who never see either person alone. And that's fine. That's the way they do business. I always did it differently. I think it's because 
I think it's because I, you know, I'm trained as a doctor. I'm so used to seeing people alone, and I kind of want to hear those those kind of secrets. Yeah, those that unguarded, I'm not, unguarded moments. Those unguarded moments. Plus, I'm not going to share that stuff with their spouse. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not allowed to. I wouldn't anyway. Yeah. But yet, but yet, I will know in the back of my mind maybe why he's struggling so much with this particular issue or something like that. I may encourage him to disclose that when he's ready to his okay. wife, that I think that this is something that will help her to understand him, that Got kind it. of thing. So. And then what about the spouse who is resistant to going to professional um, treatment? What's the, right. how can someone, how do you work through that? Yes. Yeah. And it, again, that will also vary a lot. See, some people will sort of do it by going them themselves and then say, look, as you know, I've been to see this therapist. She really agrees with me that, that we've got some merit. She's, she feels confident that she could help the two of us. Would you please come? Now he might, because she's, you know, she's talked about this person, seems to like him. So, but may not that sort of thing. Um, The other thing too, though, I'm always trying to think of things that they can say or do Absolutely. before having to threaten. Yeah. So even, you know, even are never, are never fun. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I'll sometimes say, well, look at, why don't you just kind of itemize to your husband, the things you're worried that it's, it's not just, not just you, but you're kind of worried about him a bit, maybe that he seems kind of glum or he seems unhappy or irritable or mention, if you've got children, mention the kids, that they seem to be picking up something that we're just not as happy as we used to be or something like that. Just to, it's, it's to kind of educate a little bit yeah. and, to, and then to just reassure the person, look at these are trained p- professionals because some will say, well, you know, how is she going to fix my marriage? That sort of stuff. Well, she's had training. She has a degree. Yeah. Well, you know, I heard, I heard, on the grapevine that she's got a big mouth and she'll spread this all over town. No. I mean, if she does do that, then she's going to lose her license. Yeah. That sort of thing. So, because is, and I don't think I'm alone in this, Eric, that when you can, if you can get both parties there, and as I say, if that first visit goes well, mm-hmm. you're going to want to come back because there's just a sort of sense of, it's that sense of relief. You see it in people that, you know, they let out a deep breath. Okay. And they say, you know, Believe it or not, I do feel a little bit better. I didn't want to come, but I'm glad we did. Yeah. So it's kind of like exercise. You, you feel better after you've done it, yeah, but exactly. getting, getting, getting the nurse <laughs> up to actually go uh, can, be, can be difficult. So what I'm hearing you say is it's not as, if to all the physicians out there, it's not as bad as you might think it is in your own mind. And most of the time you're going to feel better after you've done it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll Perfect. second that. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free your today. Thank you for listening to The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Please go to thephysiciansroad.com and sign up for your free guides and resources.